every decade of the zeitgeist. The older you get, the more money you make, and it becomes more difficult to sort of be independent. I'm not that guy anymore. I have given away 95% of my books. The, the downturn in, in Silicon Valley has begun. So there's always like these indicators, these signs. It's not precise, but you generally got a feeling that you were close to the top. I always feel like we're clearing karmic debt. Even though the world finds itself in various states of lockdown, the wheels of the global economic machine continue to turn, albeit at an ever-slowing rate. In this series of conversations, I'm joined by some of the best and brightest minds it's been my pleasure to befriend over the last 35 years to try and gain some insight as to what we can expect the coming months to bring. Will equity and bond markets bounce back? Does a blizzard of multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages mean that central banks have finally reached the end of the road? And if so, what happens next? Is the world facing an even greater depression? Or is a return to the inflationary spiral our likely future? From markets to mortgages, from policy to politics and everything in between, please join me for the 2020 Humanar series. The 10th in this series of conversations featured a dear friend and one of the most beautiful souls I've ever met, Joel Admian. Joel is the founder and author of Stray Reflections, in which he blends philosophy, spirituality and poetry with great market insight into some truly extraordinary work that's one of the best kept secrets in the macro world. Joel's unique way of looking at financial markets and his amazing ability to see the bigger picture has been an incredible source of both information and inspiration for me, and so I'm delighted to have this chance to share both his brain and his heart with you. So please welcome my friend, Joel Meehan. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm very well. Listen, thank you so much for doing this because I know you hate doing this stuff. It's just not your, it's not your comfort zone. So I, 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 ju I just wanted to give people a chance just to eavesdrop on a conversation because whenever you and I get a chance to sit and talk, I, I take so much away from it. Um, and, uh, and we were, you know, uh, robbed of a chance to do that in person recently. So I wanted to make sure that we at least made up for it like this. So, um, for the people listening, I, I, I I've mentioned Stray Reflections. Um, many people here will know of it, will know of you, but there'll be some people who don't. So just talk a little bit about the origins of of your writing and how that kind of morphed into Stray Reflections, because I'm always interested to hear from fellow writers how they, how they started. Those are two very different stories. Um, but I think um, I started writing purely by chance. Um, my grandfather, uh, on my dad's side, was someone that I was very close to. But when I went off to Canada for university um, and worked there initially, I didn't go back to Pakistan where he lived for four or five years. And I knew he was getting old, he was turning frail. And I always thought I'd have a chance to go back and visit him and, and learn from him and like, hear his stories. Um, and then like, I still remember it was March 18th, 2006. I got a text message from my brother saying that my grandfather passed away. And that really shook me uh, hard, especially being far away from everybody that sort of mattered at, at that point. And then a few months later, like four months later, my other grandfather from my mother's side was visiting Canada. And so I took the, you know, every opportunity I had to go see him. Uh, he was living with my uncle. 
So I'd go see him before going to work, after coming back from work, and I'd really just ask him all these questions. And I think two weeks into that process, um, I started realizing, wait, these are amazing stories. I don't want to forget them. And maybe actually he's opening up to me in a way that he may have not opened up to his own children or others in the family. So why don't I start taking notes and like jotting this down? So I would speak with him. He had no idea what I was planning, but every time I would speak with him, I would take notes and then go back and home and jot down like a paragraph or two. And it ended up being like a collection of short stories from his life, um, about a hundred or so pages. He had no idea I was doing this. It took me about a month of our conversations to put this together. And um, I got it like printed for like 16, 17 copies, which is for him and all of his children. And I gave it to him the day before I was flying to Pakistan for my brother's wedding. And it was probably one of the happiest moments in my life, just seeing his reaction um, with that book. Cause he immediately sat down, read the whole thing. Um, and then till the day he died, which was five years later, it was always in his belt. He also he used to keep a belt with like a bunch of stuff. And that book was always by his, by his side. And he was so proud of it. He'd always, Showed everybody, talked about it with everybody. So that was actually what got me started writing in the first place, which is simply that thought. Um, never something that I thought I could do before that. So that was the beginning of writing. Uh, and then Straight Reflections was really um, born from the original desire, which was to do my own thing before I turned 30. And the idea there was simply the older you get, the more money you make, and it becomes more difficult to sort of be independent. And I remember reading in Stan Druckenmiller's uh, interview in the Market Wizards book that it took him three years to make more money than his secretary. So I figured whenever I have three years of savings, I'll quit and I'll figure something out. So I reached that point in 2012, I was 28 at that time. I quit, uh, I was seeing someone, we got married, took some time off, and I started writing. And I started writing really just for myself initially, just to journal my thoughts. I'm just this kid sitting in Dubai, connect with people from around the world. I'll have a sense of how the world works, but let's build a process around it, build a track record, do I even know what I'm saying? And then um, published the first issue in February of 2014, and now six, seven years later, it's um, grown to be uh, the way I think of it, built on two pillars, one of content, which is basically writing a monthly publication and I write monthly because number one, I feel like if I was writing daily or weekly, I'm reacting to events. By writing monthly, I can actually be more reflective and, and slow down and think through the second, third order effects and actually focus on what the world could look like six months, 12 months, 18 months from now. And then the other important pillar is the community side, which is, um, where, you know, again, like given the wonderful sort of clients we've, we've built and the relationships we've built over the last few years, it's really tapping into what they're thinking. Um, so like I would travel every six weeks to New York, London, Hong Kong, Singapore, other parts of the world, host these dinners, uh, idea dinners, and then share notes from those dinners with all our clients. So you get a sense of what the community is thinking from various parts of the world at various points in time. Um, and so even now, like with, the coronavirus travels have stopped, but like last night we did our first Zoom dinner. Physically it would not have been possible because we actually got people from New York, London and Singapore together. And then I'm gonna write notes and then share that with all our clients. So that's really um, 
the beginning of Sphereflexion and how it's sort of evolved over the years. Um, you know, for, for me, it's, it's fascinating where you started because you and I, one thing that we share is this innate understanding of how important stories are. And, and it's funny, all the times we talk, you've never told me that story about your about writing that that book for your grandfather. But that's such a powerful image for me because you know, whenever I talk to people, it's the stories I want. You know, the stories are where the information is because you know that's how we've evolved is is to relate to each other through stories. And so I think when you can when you can get people to tell you a story, you can learn so many lessons from a story that. If you ask someone for a stock tip or a recommendation on where they think the S&P is going to be, there's a data point that's good at that moment in time. Um, so, so you know, as, as you've as you kind of developed that and you've developed that 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 storytelling side to you, how, trying to write the way you do, which weaves in stories and poetry and you know, all these things that are very philosophical in nature. Uh, it it it's so different the way you write, and and I. Every time I, I, I get one of your pieces, I sit down and I turn everything off because it's something that I have to concentrate on because I know there's so much in there. And it might just be a blog post or a story. It might be whatever it is. How do you go to those deep places where you have to go as a, as a, as a, as a real thinker and, and come back to something which in the scheme of things is relatively superficial, which is what a market's going to do. How, how do you balance those two things? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I think um, from the very beginning of Sharefections, what I had determined for myself was I don't want to be another report on someone's desk. Because, because when I was on the buy side, I received a bunch of them, they used to go on the bin. And so what I decided from the very beginning uh, was that also knowing that I'm not unique in what I do. Like there are a thousand people out there with a thousand opinions about the market. Uh, so there's nothing unique in what I'm doing. Um, so the only thing that's unique is me. And so I need to write from a very personal space. And it just so happened that, you know, when I started writing, there's a lot of change around me as well, I guess internally that I was experiencing. So like from the very first issue, like the first issue of Share Reflection actually had that story about my grandfather. Um, and so, so I started writing from that lens. My daughter was born, I wrote about it. My grandmother died, I wrote about it. So I made that conscious decision from the very beginning that I need to write from a personal space because that's what inspires me, that's what motivates me, not so much markets, even though that's what, I, that's what people pay to read for, right? Uh, they don't pay to read the non-market stuff. But I also have this fundamental belief that the more clarity we have in life, the more clarity we'll find in markets or in anything for that matter. So I think when I look back to why did I have this strong desire to do my own thing, I think it was because I wanted to live and design a lifestyle for myself, which would be true to my values and how I want to spend my time and my, and my attention. And the way I would describe that is, I think, again, I, I could not have articulated this before, but I think now what I see is that I have most clarity when my mind, my heart, and my tongue are aligned, right? And then when I'm working for someone in my last job, for example, like you're being told by the CIO or the CEO to do something or, or, or take a decision and you're not totally comfortable with it. So either you're not able to speak it or 
you think differently, but you're doing differently, and you always, so whatever we have tension internally, it's because those three things aren't aligned. So I wanted to, and what that basically means is that applies to our work, it applies to our relationship, it applies to our friendships. If those three things are not aligned, we'll, be, we'll have these tensions, which is always why we have these different paces with different people. So I always wanted to try to live from a place where I can actually just be one Jawad, not multiple Jawads. And I feel like if you're actually living with that centeredness, hopefully you can see things clear and you're more calm and you're more relaxed. And then again, working from home was about simplifying life, avoiding clutter. So I'm not spending time doing things that most people are doing, whether it's commute, whether it's unnecessary emails, unnecessary calls, meetings, whatever. So again, it allows you to design a routine or a life which is sort of where you can be more reflective. And then hopefully through that reflection, come to some um, thoughts, analysis, work that is of value to other people. And every single month, you don't know what that will be. And, I, and every single month, I feel like killing myself <laughs> because it's still a, a tough slog writing every month. But I give myself hope in that I've done it for six, seven years consistently. And I think, you know, just keep doing it that way. And I feel very, very privileged um, and very lucky to be doing what I'm doing. Um, no, sure. I mean, I, I, I share that. I share that sentiment 100%. But how, how have you found taking what is a very unique approach to this, right? I mean, you, you don't find many hedge fund managers who approach things the way you do because they're, it's all about bombarding themselves with information. You don't get much of a chance to sit still and quiet. How have you found the process of taking that 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 way of doing something was it was it welcome because it was so unique or was did people initially resist it and think no no i need more noise i need more how did it go down i don't know because because it's been an evolution over time and the the feedback from clients has always been consistent um in like some people don't want the endings which are usually the personal stuff uh, but most people appreciate it. And I feel, uh, so I think someone you know, a few days ago asked me, like, why would anyone subscribe to Shreya Reflections? And I struggled to give an answer because 10 different people who are our clients right now would give you 10 different answers. Like, I think it fits everybody's immersion process differently. But in terms of, like, I always lived with this sort of, and again, this is something that you and I have discussed many times, this whole imposter syndrome, right? Like, why would anyone care for what I have to say? And I think for the longest time, I did think that my unconventional background was a shortcoming, right? And, you know, I haven't gone to an Ivy League school, I haven't worked for an investment bank, or I haven't worked at a hedge fund. Uh, I started my career as a bank teller, you know, um, I'm from Pakistan, born and raised in Dubai, I look like this, like... Like, I, just, I don't fit your traditional mold. And so I always thought that this unconventional background was a shortcoming. And I actually remember there was a specific moment uh, I had this debate uh, with John Burbank, who was at that time was a dear friend, still is a dear friend, in 2016 Q1, and at this conference in Miami, and, and the debate was like a bull versus bear debate. And he was very bearish at that time, and, and he was, you know, doing really, really well. Um, and I was asked to take the bull side, and I was actually very bullish at that time um, as well. And that debate went really well. Uh, and in hindsight-wise, it was a great time to be bullish. 
that moment was a pivotal moment for me because I think in that moment I realized that um, maybe there is something more powerful in what I'm doing. Uh, it's not just like random musings. Like is it, I'm building a process over time. And then through that experience, through Burbank and many other hedge fund CIOs, uh, I realized that actually what I think of as shortcoming, they actually see it as a core strength because it helps me view the world differently from the vast majority of Western born and trained analysts. And so for me, I'm just focused on doing my work every single day. And, and I trust that it will work out over time. And so far it has, you know. But there's, a, there's a couple of people already in the questions asking um, questions about your, your sources of things that you read um, that other investors don't. And, and I, and I want to jump to that question because I, you know, I know the things you read when you talk about um, when you talk about things that other investors don't talk about that because the places you get your inspiration from are so unfamiliar to a lot of people in many respects that it, it'll be interesting to hear about this. So I don't have a, I don't have a Bloomberg terminal. I don't have Macrobon. I don't have any of these tools. I don't read anything that is not already in the public domain. Um, my subscriptions include New York Times, The New Yorker, uh, the, the Information, Strategy from Ben Thompson, uh, Wall Street Journal, of course, Financial Times, which is again, like it's all nothing special. So there's actually nothing different in what I'm reading from any other people. I think it's simply developing habits of observation, which maybe because of the way I allocate my time and I don't have the pressures that most people have, not managing money for myself or other people. I'm not, again, being distracted, being pulled one direction or another. It's just me in the middle of the desert, right? So I feel um, it's nothing that I'm, there's nothing that I'm reading differently. It's just looking at the same information and just trying to uh, approach it differently, I guess. Um, but I guess what may help in some of that, you know, uh, pattern recognition is the stuff that I actually am inspired by and that I read are like books that are non-finance related. So they are more either spiritual or poetry or things of that nature. Um, so I'm not reading a lot or a ton. It's just, you know, just being curious and, and being slow with things. But, but it's that, you know, that it's that, it's that, that desire to read stuff that is away from financial markets. And I, you know, there, there will be people in the audience sitting there going, ah, oh, well, that's no good to me. I just, what's the point of reading poetry, reading spiritual stuff. And it's not something that I grew up doing, but the value in sitting down and reading, you know, deeply contemplative texts really, I mean, has helped me enormously in trying to piece together the bigger picture, right? Because if, if you just read the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal and that kind of stuff, you, you just see the picture from one angle. If you can get above it and, and behind it and the other side of it, you and, and just think about it in the abstract, it just does it, it just does so much to to give you a much deeper way of looking at stuff. How how have you um, how have you managed to to take that that poetry and philosophy and apply that to markets? I think it's about applying it to yourself, right? right. I think, um, so it's not really, so like I used to, again, want to read everything. Like there was an old Javad who wanted, who was cerebral, who wanted to be, you know, like wanted to know everything. 
and I'm not that guy anymore. I have given away 95% of my books because I don't want to know anything uh, about everything. Uh, I think it comes down to that same point of how finding clarity, right? So all these books that you would read, it's not really about finding a, a direct linkages between something you're reading and how can I apply it to markets. It's really about how can I apply it to myself? Because if you can apply it to yourself and again, feel more clear in your thinking, in your mind, then naturally when you are looking at markets or any, anything out there, you should hopefully have, again, more clarity um, and you're more centered. And so, you, so you're not exaggerated in your responses, emotional, one way or another. And I think, so yes, for me, I'm reading stuff that I, that I feel I can actually implement in my life. If I can't find a way to action it in my own life, I don't find a, a necessary need to read. Um, so it's yeah. really about how can I be better, like myself, how can I be a better person um, in all areas of life? And I feel like if, you, if I do that, then whatever I touch, whether it's markets or anything else, any work will be better for it. Yeah, I mean, it's, see, I, I, I mean, I, I love having these types of conversations because I'm, I'm just interested in how people think, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not so interested in the what people think because I can figure out what I think. But if I, you can teach me how to think, right, and think and, and teach me to think in ways that I don't already do, there's so much value in that, and and that's that's why you know, I love talking to you. And I love reading this stuff. I mean, it is it is. It's just such a, it's such a, a, a gift to be able to convey that to people. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm going to ask you about some market stuff, uh, even though I'd love to sit and talk philosophy with you all day long. And, and the place that I want to actually talk about um, is Silicon Valley, because of all the stuff you've been writing, you were one of the guys who very, very early started just picking gently at the threads of Silicon Valley and, and, and talking about how it was kind of reaching that point where the whole thing might start to change in terms of the perception of it. Talk a little bit about what you saw, uh, what you've seen since, and how you think Silicon Valley or where it goes from here. There are a few simple observations. Uh, first was that whenever you see the biggest company in the hottest sector go public, that's usually a sign of a top. And so for me, I always mark that as Uber, which was you know, the most hailed um, uh, private unicorn at that time. Literally, yeah. You know, and so we thought that was one indicator. Number two was also having, I guess, based in Dubai, having the sense that Gulf money arrives late to the party, so like Saudi money, if it's coming into VC deals, it's, it's, you're really pushing it now. And the kind of investments they were making, and then the structure, which is the vision fund, how do you go from wanting to raise $30 billion to invest over five years to raising 100 billion that you deploy in two years? So then once vision fund became the marginal price setter, then it was really a function of understanding who will be after them. So you have to have a vision fund too. And our view was, as soon as these public company, as soon as these private companies go public, you'll start to see the public markets treat them with more discerning eyes, and you should start to see them suffer to a certain extent. And so, if Uber goes public, they'll push out WeWork next, and Uber's not going to work, WeWork's not going to work, which means Vision Fund Two will not happen. 
Division fund two doesn't happen, then you're pretty much done for in terms of the incremental liquidity coming in at the at the hot, late stage valuation level. And then there were lots of other you know uh, anecdotes as well um, related to this from you know the tallest building, which is Salesforce Tower, you know, um, a few years ago, to the hubris that you were starting to see from some tech CEOs and founders. So there's always like these indicators, these signs. It's not precise, but you generally got a feeling that you were close to the top. And it's panned out that way, you know, um, with Uber, the WeWork, and now we're beginning to see, I, I feel like the down cycle, which could persist for, for some time. The, the pushback always used to be, to my view, that there's just too much liquidity. And I would say that's based on today's headlines. If the headlines change, if prices change, nothing changes sentiment like price, and you'll start to see investors receive. And even if you look at past bear markets, what you see is when you have prices move lower, VCs become more cautious. So they'll start deploying less and then focus on you know the winners in their portfolio as opposed to the losers. And they need to really be more uh, thoughtful about how they invest. And we're starting to see that now, where VCs are holding back on investing. And so for me, I feel like the, the downturn in, in Silicon Valley has begun um, with this whole focus on now profitability, layoffs are happening. And it, I think it continues for a while longer. Um, the other observation is also somewhat related, which is that every decade has a zeitgeist, right? So it's, it's like some thought that starts as very contrarian, almost you know, unimaginable. But by the end of the decade, it's just conventional wisdom. So 70s was you know, inflation and gold, 80s was Japan's taking over the world, 90s was US growth stocks, 2000s was China commodities, EM. And, uh, in, and then this decade, I think the most prescient article ever written for this decade was actually by Mark Andreessen in 2011, Software is Eating the World. And if you go back and you read that article now, you'd, well, you'd want to shoot yourself for not believing when he wrote that at that time, because he really called it very, very nicely. So we've really seen the zeitgeist for this decade, which in my opinion is software. And you typically see the end of these zeitgeists around the decade end, which is again, close to where we are. Again, nothing is precise, but these are just some observations. And then on top of that, then you layer your own sense of valuation, your sense of uh, positioning, and then you, try to imagine how the, the cycle could play out. Um, so yeah, that, that, in a nutshell, that was what I saw in Silicon Valley. And I was surprised why more people aren't looking and looking in and connecting the dots. But I do think now it's such an obvious story. And, uh, and consumer startups are really struggling. Um, and that's so why now I think it doesn't, this doesn't mean like I'm bearish Silicon Valley forever. I think what this simply means is innovation continues in certain pockets, which will be the new leaders, but valuations suffer. Um, and it's not just for Silicon Valley, it's also for public markets because private markets are just delivered data on public markets, right? So it's all together, it's all mixed up together. And, and I guess what was unique about this was private markets don't have a good understanding of public markets. And public investors don't have a good understanding of private markets. Yeah. Which is also why I feel like people miss that top or miss that sort of the dynamic that was playing out at that time. So, so how how important was WeWork as a as a signal of a shift in sentiment? Because for for me, when that happened, 
I felt that was very, very important. It, it was kind of a, it was kind of a jokey story, and there were lots of funny headlines about everything that was in that S one. But, but was it as important as I think it is, or do you think that, that that it was just one of a number of things that just happened to happen at the end of some sort of cycle? I mean, for me, I think it still started with Uber because it was Uber that got into focus the losses and what's the path to profitability, and that started to really be tested. Um, and into the discourse after the Uber IPO. And then we work, I mean, if you look at Masa and his strategy, and, and we look back at Masa's history and his strategy during the 90s era, his strategy always used to be to invest big and go public, right? And he would use that liquidity to keep doing more deals. The difference, in, and, and Masa, you know, by all accounts is a visionary uh, and he has had a tremendous career. He's got a lot of things right. I think the mistake he made between 90s and today was simply back in the 90s, he was investing in early stage companies, which would, had a, a tremendous runway. Now he was investing in very late stage companies and he arrived late. Like the biggest mistake Masai has made in his career was investing in Sprint. Because that was actually the moment the Silicon Valley innovation cycle was beginning. And instead of focusing there, he, he made investments in these let, you know, poor telecom businesses. And he realized that mistake in 2016. Hence, the Vision Fund was hastily launched in 2017. And he's like, I'm gonna go back to my vision for what the internet is going to do to the world. And so, um, the strategy was very clear. Once Uber goes public, they have to make WeWork go public and everything else go public as well. And I think, whereas Uber focused on like the, the economics of the business, the WeWork story focused on the founders and like what they are getting away with, right? The cult of the founder. And we completely had shifted from like the Don Valentine era in the 1970s where the VCs were king and the boards were king to now where the founders rule everything. And so that then became, so I think Adam Newman, WeWork became that sort of stigma, which obviously led to more scrutiny um, from public market investors, you know, going forward. And then for the, for the longest time, as I traveled to the Bay Area and I spoke to investors, most people would still come back and say, you know what, this is a soft bank problem. You know, we're different. And for me, like the, the blitzscaling culture was prevalent. So it's not just soft bank, it's, it's, it's across the board. And so I do think, you know, this year, we're gonna start to see the problems spread beyond just soft bank backed companies to like broader ecosystem. And then we'll see, you know, we'll see how things um, develop. It doesn't look good. Um, so so what, one of the things you said there, which which is, again, interesting, going back a few minutes, was when you talked about um, the Gulf money traditionally coming in late, and, and, and particularly the Saudi money, which, which seems to be the case. Um, and obviously, that's something that realistically people in the US and people in Europe and even people in Asia don't really focus on, right? Because... Ten, what tends to happen is those things are big, splashy headlines because the, num the money's late, but it's big. And the, and the talk is always of the size of the injection, not the timing of it. You know, being where you are in Dubai, obviously, you're in the middle of everything. Um, but you're also a million miles away from the center of everything. So how, how has being in Dubai helped you in terms of perspective and, and maybe giving you an understanding better of the flows? Because I think when you're in the U.S., particularly, you can, you can isolate yourself from from stuff that matters elsewhere in the world. Yeah, I think it helps just, I guess, being away from all the money centers, right? So being away from New York, London, Hong Kong, Singapore, um, 
the Bay Area as well. I think it helps just being away. Um, I don't know how, because I've never lived in those areas to really tell you, but I would I imagine it, it helps because I'm not having those same, I'm not infused in that culture in those conversations on a daily basis. So I can actually be more independent. I can be agnostic. You know, I, I think that's fundamental to my process, if there's a process or, or my principle, which is that um, I want to be independent. I don't care to be consensus or contrarian. Like I, I don't think there's any um, value in being contrarian or any, you know, I, I just feel like you want to be independent and, and whatever decision you come to, whether it's consensus or contrarian, if you've independently arrived at it, that's fine. And so there'll be many times where I've actually got a consensus view. Like I've got a view which matches with consensus and I've got a view that matches with people that are contrarian and it's okay. So I think being independent in your analysis as opposed to ideological, right? So most people living in that ecosystem would become ideological about this is going to continue forever. And then the other thing is being empirical rather than dogmatic, right? So again, like I, you know, I don't have any personal um, agenda or like ideological bias one way or another. I just want to you know, that, again, like I wish I had the confidence to say, if someone asked me what do you, what do, you do for a living, was to that I'm, you know, I wake up every day, I'm devoted to the pursuit of truth, right? And whatever that may be. Um, so from the very beginning, I've not been ideological about the Fed, um, not been ideological about Trump. And I think that's helped me view Trump differently than most analysts. It's helped me view the Fed differently from most analysts. It's, I guess, helped in the Bay Area. And then being here, uh, as it relates to specifically Silicon Valley, that moment, I think the, the thread really began to unravel with um, Khashoggi's murder in October um, of, I think it was 18 now. And was it 18? Yeah, 18, yeah, yeah. And because for me, that was the time when um, Saudi had actually committed to Vision Fund 2. But then after that murder, everything fell apart, right? So it was like that butterfly effect where, you know, we, so we, what we wrote at the time was the Khashoggi is killing. The unintended consequence of that is the eventual bursting of the Silicon Valley bubble, which is again, something that no one else was linking the whole time, no. right? But, but I guess that's the, the nuance of understanding what happened with, with specifically that murder and what that meant for flows and how important, and how important Saudi particularly was in uh, in Silicon Valley. I don't think that was a secret because I mean, even Kara Swisher and lots of other journalists in the West wrote about that. It wasn't, it wasn't anything new. So it was out there in the public domain. I think it was just a matter of people connecting the dots to see what that would implicate. Right, and, well, and, and prioritizing that in the, in the important step, right? Because you, you kind of go, well, it doesn't really matter, but it, it actually matters a great deal. So, so talking about, um, about that part of the world, talking about the Middle East, you know, what, and you, for me, have been a great temper of my own ideology around things like the Fed and Trump, and, and, and it's talking to you and reading your stuff that actually brings me back and kind of go, yeah, you know what, there is another side to this. And I, you know, I, I still remember a conversation we had in 2016, I guess, not long after Birmingham before, when, when we were having our own little bull bear debate. I was bearish, you were bullish. I was wrong, you were right, as it turned out. But it, I went away from that with a whole load of stuff in, in my mind. But one of the things in in that part of the world that, that I know you've been talking about, writing about um, a great deal, is something that's very contrarian. That is the idea of of a, of a coming together, of a, of a of a of a peace breaking out in the Middle East, particularly 
between Saudi and Iran, you know, which most people will look at the stuff that's been going on and go, well, they're deadly enemies. It'll never work. Just, just talk a little bit about it because I find the whole the history of it fascinating, the theory around it fascinating. I think it's such a unique perspective. I'd love you to talk about it a little bit more. So they're really, um, again, I, I don't know if it's Lenin or someone who said that there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. So there, towards the end of 1979, in the month of December, three things happened that really shaped the, the, this region for the next 40, 40 years. Uh, the first was uh, the siege in Mecca. So you had like a Saudi rebellion and they sieged the Holy Mosque. The second was uh, the Iranian revolution. And the third was the beginning of the Soviet invasion uh, of Afghanistan and, and that whole war, which basically lasted a decade and legitimized religious radicalization. Like America actually had a project called Jihad Literacy Project, right? And, and so Saudi's response to that rebellion was more religion. You know, Iranian obviously was a religious revolution, uh, a social revolution, but really because of the religious leader on top of it became into like a theocratic uh, revolution. And then the, 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 the 10 years of the, of the Soviet war. Now, um, interestingly enough, um, we're so far removed from all those events and the world has changed in so many different ways. And we're just so tired of uh, everybody, like even the Americans, they're just so tired of this woefully misguided war on terror, which has completely uh, screwed up Middle East in so many ways. And I think the simple observation is that 70% of Saudi is people under 30. They weren't even born in 1979. I wasn't born in 1979. I have no memory of that. So this is like a baggage for some, their fathers and their elders. Like they want to just move on. And so MBS, interestingly enough, is the perfect leader for that country, which has that youth population. And so he, in my opinion, actually is a revolution in Saudi Arabia because it's very unlike their culture to have a young person leading when they're usually tribal and elderly. And so what he's done is basically break the religious authority, break the merchant elite, um, break the princely elite. And so he's like a millennial leader for a millennial country. And I think he recognizes, and, and I think the turning point was a, a few years ago at the first big conference that did, and I was there in the audience. And when he said that we're done with the past, something happened in 1979, we had a violent response to it. and we're not going to continue that, like this moment that ends. And I think I was sitting in the audience and I realized that that's going to be a significant historical turning point. We're going to look back as that being the beginning of Saudi's like movement towards modernization or um, some progress. And then if you look at Iran, 60% of Iran is under 30. Like they are also far removed from the revolution. They want to party and they want to be on the internet and they want to like, do stuff that they want to do. Like the highest rate of no jobs is in Iran, in the world. Like, that's, like, the youth is just so different from, again, the elderly, right? So the idea simply was that demographically, both face challenges, which is of youth unemployment. They need to create opportunity for their, for their populations. So they can't keep this war going on. And then if you actually look at and then the lower oil prices feed into that constraint, right? So you can't keep 
funneling these adventures. And then if you actually uh, look at the history of Saudi-Iranian relations or Saudi-Gulf relations, they've actually had lots of times when there have been friendly animosity, friendly animosity, and then, you know, and they, it seems strange now, but like only seven years ago, uh, Ahmadinejad, who was the crazy Iranian leader, was sitting in Riyadh, hugging and kissing, holding hands with King Abdullah. That's seven years ago. It's not too hard to imagine. So for me, it's simply understanding that the constraints of both sides, demographically, um, where, you know, I, I say this, God is in a bear market globally, and it's no different than the Middle East, right? So what you should expect is less religion, um, more focus on freedoms, somewhat social freedoms, and eventually move toward, towards peace. And we're already seeing action towards that, um, whether it's repairing relationships with Qatar, uh, whether it's being more opening to Israel, whether it's, um, you know, UAE and Iran relations, like, every, like the entire uh, region realizing that America is done needs to figure out some way to negotiate a cold peace. So I'm actually very optimistic. It's probably the most controversial yeah. view that I have, but also one of the most highest conviction views I have, which is that slowly but surely we are actually moving toward the path of peace in the Middle East, or relatively speaking. And, how, and how's, there's a couple of questions on that. One, I want to I ask you how that changes the Middle East, if we do get peace, uh, particularly. But I just want to go back to MBS, because you know, it, it, here's a guy with two very different sides, right? We've already talked about the Khashoggi murder, and he's, he's come in as a millennial, as a revolutionary, trying to do all these great things for a country that was stuck in the past. But he seems to have made some pretty major missteps which is the real MBS? Is he impulsive, reckless, prone to making dumb mistakes, or is he the smart, calculating, thoughtful planner? How do you kind of put the two sides together? I think in the realm of global politics, global leadership, um, people make mistakes all the time. And um, so I don't, I don't know if I have any special insight on MBS. So, um, what, all I know is that he is a risk taker. Um, he liked trading equity markets before he was he's doing what he's doing. Um, but I think more specific to MBS, I think what's, what's important to understand is Saudi has always been under America's security guarantee, right? And that changed in 2011 when the Arab Spring happened, again, poorly termed uh, event, but that happened in 2011. And what you saw was America um, not support Mubarak, and then Obama pivot to Asia and reduce troop presence in the Middle East. So it was the beginning of America's deleveraging geopolitically from the region. So this was for the first time ever that Saudi had to conduct its own foreign policy, right? So again, in that, you're going to make a ton of mistakes. They have the worst PR machine. I, I don't know how, who writes, you know, I, mean, I don't know who comes up with the strategy, but it's horrible. But, um, and, and I guess they're learning, still very slow um, and still very poor in doing whatever they're doing. But um, like the Yemen war, bad decision from the very beginning. Um, but then how do you compare it to, you know, uh, America's decision to go into Afghanistan, like 20 years, what have we achieved, 
right? So like, people make these, like leaders make these stupid mistakes all the time. Um, people get assassinated, people do all sorts of crazy shit. Um, but I think in the scheme of things, you know, directionally, where are we going? I would say directionally we're going, like right now, for example, within the coronavirus, UAE uh, sent supplies to help Iranians combat the virus. Before the coronavirus, the Israeli cycling team was in the UAE. Um, MBS in Saudi has um, welcomed and invited uh, the Qatari leadership for a council meeting in, in Riyadh. Saudis have met with the Shia leadership in Iraq. You know, um, So it's not really a religious thing at all. It's simply figuring out politically how we can live with each other. And so, you know, I feel um, it's not so much about MBS. I, I feel like when these things happen, demographically speaking, and, and these forces, I just feel like it's like a, a generational thing. Like there's just yeah. strong social powers, forces behind this. It doesn't matter if it's MBS or anybody else, we're just gonna go there anyway. Just like it doesn't matter if it was Obama or anybody else, you would have left the, the Middle East. It's the right thing to do, yeah. right? So, uh, I feel like almost like these, these shifts are bigger than the people that sort of like almost feel like they're directing it. So, so where in, in let's let's assume we do go down that road. Where 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 do the opportunities arise in the Middle East? Do you think because presumably China is going to want to get in that mix somewhere, and there's there's obviously plenty of rapprochement between the Saudis and the Chinese, the Iranians and the Chinese. Is this part of a pivot towards the Chinese umbrella, or does the Middle East? do you think form almost its own block and, and deal with everybody either side of it? Yeah, I mean, I, my view has been that the Middle East is geopolitically insignificant. Uh, in, as, as you're a global investor, I don't think you need to worry about risk from the Middle East, you know? And even like when, when the attack happened in Iraq where Soleimani was killed in January, that was, uh, that was what we wrote. Like it's not geopolitically significant at all. Yeah, you did. You know, so, the, so the idea is like, you know, don't worry about instability in the Middle East. Don't worry about a spike in oil prices because of something that Iran might do to Iraq or Saudi Arabia. Um, so like geopolitically, it's insignificant. Um, from an investment perspective, what do you have? You've got the equity markets, uh, which have had a lost 16, 17 years, you know, worse than a lost decade. Um, given where oil prices are right now, I mean, obviously the outlook looks poor. Economically speaking, things are pretty bad, uh, as they are in the rest of the world. So, I mean, I don't know if there's any opportunity for like unique alpha in Middle East that you won't be able to find elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, I don't have any. So, I, I've got a very strong political view. Uh, I'm, I'm yet to be able to translate that at a very micro level to. Um, what that could mean for like specific equity markets in the region, um, in a in any meaningful manner. But it's, uh, I'm going to jump over to some of the questions there because we've got a few coming in that I want to ask you. Uh, the first one um, was about the zeitgeist for the coming decade. We've had software obviously in the last decade. What do you think is is the zeitgeist for the next ten years, or has it not revealed itself yet? Oh, I have no idea. These things are always uh, super clear and obvious in hindsight. Right. <laughs> no idea what it could be um, uh, going forward. No idea. But how do, how do you how do you think about it in terms of 
you know, when you understand that there will be a zeitgeist, right? You, 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 you're in that mindset that you think there is going to be something that transcends this decade. It's going to be something that's important. How do you put yourself in the right place to be observant towards it? What, what inputs do you look for that suggest, is it, is it media related? Is it human behavior related? What, what, what clues can you look for? So, I mean, I'm of the view that it's, um, very difficult to predict the future and which is funny because that's what we're supposed to be doing but if actually you know you were if you and i were having this conversation in 2015 we would not have imagined five years later there would be trump as president we would be at these levels in equity markets or you know the fed would have moved interest rates to zero or the bond yields would be where they are uh gold would be where, I mean, like, we would not have imagined or the virus like we would not have imagined any of this so like, I don't think about five years out, 10 years out. I struggle with that time frame. So my focus is always like, as how can I be present in my own life? But then also looking at like the omens of the present, how can I imagine what the headlines will be six months, 18 months from now? Because it's either gonna be new information or a changing interpretation of existing information that moves asset prices. So, if you can actually do your job well on that six to 18 month horizon and then keep rolling that time frame, yeah. you picked it amongst one of your themes you're writing about and then you stuck onto it in a way which you feel is gonna matter over, over the decade. It's very difficult to hold on. Um, I don't know anybody who would have held on to Amazon, for example, since 2011, 2012. Well, that was, that was actually, you, you preempted my next question because I was going to talk about that exact thing. When, when you find these trends and you're, you know, and Silicon Valley was something that you wrote about for you know, a long time, right? You, you, you kept on that. And I was just about to ask you, you just said it's really difficult to do, but you've managed to do it. How do you stay on those things? How do you ride those trends for longer than our, our intuition tells us to? I think it's super difficult and it comes down to uh, the answer is very individual because it comes down to like what is your portfolio and like how are you building it and how are you structuring it and like what are you comfortable with like drawdowns and, and not and like so I think it's a very individual question in, in terms of like everybody has to answer it for himself how they manage their personal portfolio or their I guess if they're running a fund how do, how do they run their fund so I don't feel like I'm really equipped to answer that. Um, like it's, like I don't, you know, I don't manage money. Um, so I don't know, but I do know it's super, it must be super difficult, um, you know, to, to, to hold on to, to ideas that are really, really working for you. I mean, I know some investors who, who fundamentally believe that's the right thing to do and that's what they do. Yeah. Uh, but they get it wrong sometimes. Yeah. So someone just asked, asked a question, which uh, is a good one with you being, born and raised in Pakistan, your thoughts on India and Pakistan in terms of while we're on the peace subject, but also as, as markets, are they, are they, I mean, Pakistan's probably tough for anyone to invest in, but India has had so many kind of false dawns. Uh, does Modi make a difference and is, is, is India investable now? Um, I'm not, I mean, let me answer that by taking a step back. Because I think it's, I think that may answer a lot of other questions that may be popping up, which is that I actually feel um, it's very difficult 
if, if, you, if your desire right now is to make money, you'll find it very difficult in the next 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. And like, so in January, for example, what we wrote, we wrote something that we, which was, what if we're actually in a sideways market? And the idea there was simply that in Q4, we saw this you know, strong equity rally of last year. And then people were talking about a melt-up. And our thinking was, actually, if you go back to 2018, and you look at equity markets globally since 2018, we haven't made much progress. So since the 2018 high to the February high in US equities, that difference was 15%. And global equities were up 5%. Most of the markets were down to like negative 15, 20%. So the observation was, if we're actually in a sideways market, uh, we're not having a melt up. What comes next is actually a, a cleansing downside correction. And we may, because everything in January was, for us, trading where it should trade two, three years from now, from a valuation perspective. So if that's the case, then you're going to start to see um, sideways markets, very difficult markets, uh, churn, frustration, psychological pressure. And I still think that's, the big picture. The big picture is two years from now, we won't be any higher than we are from the 2020 highs. And I think what the, the, the virus has sort of made me uh, realize is also that I think emerging markets particularly are, are really troubled. Um, you know, and I think India falls in that bucket big time. Uh, Pakistan probably will see its currency weaken as well, but I think India will also see its currency weaken. If anything, um, I'm much more confident in the Pakistan political leadership than the Indian political leadership, given how some of the societal differences that are occurring and the Indian government's response to that, um, which fits into another theme that I have, which I'll, which I'll talk about. But I do think emerging markets generally are at risk. Um, and so I'm more accepting of the view that we could see an overshoot in the dollar which leads to another EM blow up, uh, which may lead to more China problems. So I'm more, I'm more accepting of that view right now. Um, so I just think it'd be very difficult to make money, right? And, and so for me, like what I've been thinking more about is, I almost feel like we're clearing karmic debt. And I think that's gonna sound strange, but what I mean by this is simply that when I look around the world, it's interesting to me how we have the Me Too movement and, and Harry Weinstein and Jeff Epstein and like people that have gotten away with stuff because they were men of, or women of power are suddenly falling. You look at the college admissions scandal, same thing. You know, like there's something going on where all of a sudden, um, Karma's coming back in, in a weirdly powerful way. And then if you think about, you know, the movement towards equal pay, men and women, and like the women's football team in America and what they took forward. Again, there's something there. When you look at the Oscars, I mean, like 10 years ago, you had Chris Martin, I'm sorry, Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin hosting. This year you had Steve Martin and Chris Rock hosting. You know, for the first time you had a Korean movie win Best Picture. Like there's something happening. Uh, interestingly, in that space, it, you look at, and there was also something we wrote in January, like one of the ways from a karma perspective to reduce inequality is either to make poor people richer or rich people poorer. And one way that happens is through a falling stock market. 
right? Because it will automatically fix the ratio of labor share of national income versus capital share of national income. And so I almost feel like we're seeing this reordering of society in a way which is going to punish the hubris, you know? So again, when you think of Silicon Valley and Massa, um, it's gonna punish arrogance, it's gonna punish countries that are, so I almost feel like the way I describe it is we're moving towards justice. And so people that have committed injustice or countries that are committing injustice or any, like these characters, these companies, these sectors, these individuals um, will sort of suffer from that. And so you could argue, wait, you know, Amazon is breaking out on highs and Bezos is richer today and we've lost 20 million jobs. But I would argue Bernie has lost the election, but all his policies are being enacted in, in many ways. There's more acceptance for universal healthcare. There's more acceptance for universal basic income. Unlike the previous crisis, what we're actually seeing is more support for, you know, unemployment insurance or finally uh, addressing, you know, perhaps coming out of a pandemic, higher wages and, and improving the social safety net. Um, so, that, so it's leading, the crisis is leading to policies that will structurally fix the low labor share of natural income. We're penalizing companies that have had buybacks or we're preventing buybacks. We're not really just bailing out corporates. We're focused more on the small businesses this time. So it's, you know, to, so, to a certain extent, we're, we, I can imagine two, three years from now, equities don't do anything, but we are implementing changes structurally, which will result in a, a, a more normal level of income share in the global economy, or at least in the US, let's say if you're taking that as a specific example, which means equities do nothing probably for a while, which fixes that whole sideways theory. Then even if you think about climate change, right? It's been in the public discourse for over 20 years, and all of a sudden, like the world seemed like completely shift with this whole ESG movement over the last few months, and then Greta becomes the person of the year at time. And then you have the COVID virus um, show up, and now you've got, you know, transportation that's stopped, airlines stopped, um, which is, you know, predominantly where you know, oil demand growth is coming from, drilling has stopped. Um, guess what, you know, you, you've actually, I mean, according to some studies that I was reading, you've saved more lives in China from the national reduction in emissions than you've lost through coronavirus. We have probably saved more lives through um, just not driving. Like, like transportation and cars is the number one leading death of leading cause of death between people that are five to 29 years old. Like 1.3 million people die every single year because of transportation um, and car accidents, right? So I feel like in a way you've got this whole virus stuff happening, but you know, we have, the environment is better for it. We may be saving more lives net net. How do you equate one against the other? I don't know, but like, what are we actually achieving or what's actually happening through this is, um, is interesting, you know, and, so what does that mean? So again, like I think the direction India is going is not good from a karma perspective, uh, I feel. Uh, and then many other countries like that. I think China could also be in that sort of category, depending on how you look at certain things. Uh, but yeah, in a nutshell, like- But this, you know, but this, is, but this, is, this, is, this is, I mean, we, we've just about run out of time, but what a perfect way to kind of bring this thing full circle. You know, we, we spent the first 
15, 20 minutes talking about you know, abstracts, right, and, and these philosophical ideas. So to bring it all around to this, this karmic reset is, is, is so beautifully done. And, and, it, and it's something that I'm so happy that, that, that we kind of got out of you because, because to think that way and, and, to, and to have these thoughts that you really only get from sitting and being reflective and not reactive to, to news, it just opens up a world of possibilities, even if it's just of a way of looking at the world, right? Because you could talk about the deaths and we can all lay up the deaths of coronavirus or, or the other things. But as soon as you have that idea that what about looking at it through the lens of karma, it broadens your applications, it broadens your understanding of the situation, it broadens the things you can pull into your thesis. And so I, I think it's just such a, a beautiful way to kind of put a bow on this. But before I let you go, I'm going to ask you for, for one thing, and that is uh, a couple of book recommendations, because a lot of people have asked for them in the, in the chat rooms. Books that you've read that have been important to you. And I, I don't want fun reads. I want books that, that were important to you. Um, so I, I would say The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. I would say The Fall by Albert Camus. I would say Rilke, um, Letters to a Young Poet. Uh, I would say Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Yeah. I would say Everything Roomy. I would say um, Khalil Gibran, The Prophet. I would say, uh, and if, if from a markets perspective, I think The Money Game by George Goodman is like an all-time favorite. Well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask people uh, to to follow you on Twitter, and if and if I can get you to put those books up on your Twitter feed because uh, you, know, you, you say them and people probably aren't writing them down and hearing them, but um, your Twitter feed at JSMian, M-I-A-N. Um, if you are out there and you're on Twitter and you're not following Joe Ed, you're missing some extraordinary insights, I can promise you. And my friend, as always, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. I love every minute I get to spend with you and, and this hour was no different. I'm just so happy that I could share it with, with other people this time. So be well, love to the family and I'll see you soon. Love you, buddy. Take care. Take care, man. Bye.